you want to turn to uh, Philippians 2? Particularly Philippians 2, verse 3. Let's just, uh, let's just invite the Spirit again. Just open up our hearts to the Spirit. Lord God, we just uh, we thank you so much, Father God, for your mighty word. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for this wonderful letter, Lord Jesus. Spirit, we just want to welcome you here to have your way with us, to do your work in us, Lord Jesus, that we might grow in just the glorification of your name. Jesus, you're so good. Your grace is so wonderful. Your name is truly above every other name, Lord God. And we just pray, come and shape your people this morning. Come and shape us, Father God, that we might glorify that name in the city. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn there in your Bibles, you'll find that Philippians 2.3 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or pride. But in humility, count others more significant, superior to yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you know, one of the great truths of the Bible is that God wants to change your heart. Not just your outward behaviour, but your inner most being. The very things that motivate you. The very things you see as most precious and important. He wants to make new. He wants to create a new heart and spirit within you. Ezekiel 36, 26. Which will cause your life to look fundamentally different. from those around you. Now, the Bible is full of pictures of him doing this for us to get hold of. Cowards becoming brave, like Gideon and Peter. Murderers who become leaders and prophets and authors of scripture, like Moses and Paul, who wrote this letter that we're looking at. And selfish and proud people becoming humble as they realise who Jesus is. How much they've been living out of line with the way he always intended people to live. And how much he values people, even the worst in our society. Do you know, a great example of this is found in Luke 19, which tells us of a small man whose life was entirely self-focused. It was about self-gain. He was a tax collector who took as much as he could from the others around him for the king of his day. And he took a heavy cut himself like most tax collectors. 
And what we see in this man's story is that as he grew rich and powerful, the people around him grew bitter and angry towards him. They grumbled about him and separated themselves from him. As he served and elevated himself above the people, people withdrew from him. His heart and his action caused division and unrest. Then something happened in his life. In this story, he met Jesus. You might know the story. He heard Jesus was in town and climbed a tree to spot him over a crowd. And Jesus walked through the crowd and came to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come, come on down. I must stay at your house today. And the crowd kicked off a bit. Why him, Jesus? He's a sinner. That person, he offends us. We're better than him. Why are you going to him, Jesus? But Jesus said, no, it's him. Zacchaeus, I want to go to his house. And as Jesus comes into his house, something in Zacchaeus' heart suddenly transformed. His heart dramatically changes. And we see what has been so important in his life changes. His eyes stop focusing on himself. He suddenly wants to follow Jesus' example and obey Jesus and focus on those around him. Others suddenly become more important to him than they were. And as his heart changes in this story, we see Zacchaeus turn from a taker to a giver. He gives half of his wealth to those who are poor in his community, half of it. He goes straight away. And he gives back four times what he has taken fraudulently to those people he has taken it from. I love I love this remarkable story of change. It's literally just in the Bible. It's like the sheriff of Nottingham becoming Robin Hood. Being like, hey, Robin, give me that hat. I'm going to do what you're doing. It looks better than what I've been doing for this time. Do you know, it's like a real life Ebenezer Scrooge transformation. I don't know if, uh, do you know, there's any copyright issues with Charles Dickens, but the Bible definitely had this story nailed before he wrote A Christmas Carol. One who cared for himself before others. Saw himself as more important than they are. And sowed grumbling and disunity and comparative bitterness into others' hearts. Became one who saw others as more significant as himself. And so started a journey of loving and serving them with his wealth and his life sacrificially. Pouring it out on them. Click on. As Butters said, if you're here for my first preach on Philippians, I took the liberty of making up a new word. And I, I kind of stand by it. Createments. Createments. It's, it's a word that I'm just trying to capture something, or we're trying to capture something as a team here, to express how the powerful statements of Paul makes throughout the letters of Philippians, of which there are many, were not meant to be just written to on external things like coffee cups and keychains or just meant to be encouraging statements. But they were intended by Paul to bring about the kind of heart changes I've just been describing to you. 
to do this work that God wants to do in our lives. In each of these statements, Paul is crystallizing key aspects of Christian truths that he lives by and sets an example of to help spur on the church in Philippi, to help say, look, go that way, keep going this way, keep going, to be the new created community that God has made us through the gospel to be by grace. These statements were meant, as we meditate on them, to get hold of them in their context, to transform the very fibres of our lives, to sow more of Jesus' way of living into the tapestry of our short time on earth. They were meant to create something new in us. And Philippians 2, 3, as we're looking at this morning, is an absolute beauty of her creatment. Do nothing Nothing. Focus on nothing. Absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Do you know, in one sense, like so many things in the Bible, this is an incredibly simple thing to understand. Paul is simply saying here, let the same change that happened in Zacchaeus' heart and mind in light of Jesus take hold of your life fully. Like he did. As a Christian, move away from a life focused on self-gain and self-importance where the world revolves around yourself to a life where your focus and your aim and your existence is about gain for others. It's a call to take a life of taking, put it aside, and learn a life of giving. You know, it's a life where you no longer measure your success or its worth by how much you can put into it, how many things you can gain from it, how full you can make it to a life where you measure success by how much of yourself you pour out into others. How much you give away. All because of true humility a belief that you are less important and significant than others in the purpose of God has grown up in your heart and mindset and a true value of others where you see them as superior to you, genuinely, has grown in you. That's it. That is it. Less like Zacchaeus' pre-Jesus encounter, more like Zacchaeus' post-Jesus encounter. If you have got that nailed this morning, that simplicity... Well done, we can wrap up and go home. But if you're anything like me, actually when you read this, it kind of makes you squirm a bit in your seat. You know, and that's because of this. The reality of living it genuinely is incredibly hard. Not just knowing it at surface level, but letting it intrude into your life and be the way you live is really hard. And I think one of the main reasons for this is that the culture 
of our day and our starting point often is totally different from this. And in reality, this is a call to swim completely against the trend and the flow of the world around us. You see, so many things in our culture invite us to keep a bit of Zacchaeus' tax collector heart in our lives, to hold on to some aspect of it, to keep looking out for number one, first and foremost. So many of the messages around us are, think first on improving yourself and your career, your wealth, your security, your comfort. Keep gathering and consuming. Keep filling up your experiences. Society praises and looks to examples of exceptional individuals who have distanced themselves and stood above the crowd. Remarkable leaders, businessmen, athletes. Success is measured by how far I make it up the ladder. You know, very rarely, if ever, do we hear about remarkable teams of people. It's always the leader of the team, the coach, or the individual player. Even less do we hear about remarkable communities to aspire to. And if you want to look a little deeper, I think the core philosophies of our society are self-focused. We live in a consumer market economy, and the main principle of that is that self-gain brings about the greatest good for people. Focus on yourself first. And the doctrine of evolution preaches survival of the fittest. Compete for yourself first. These are powerful streams of thought in our society. All of these messages cry out to us. Actually, living for yourself first is not that bad. You don't really need to apply Philippians 3.2 to your lives. Yeah, know it, but don't really apply it. Do you know, equally, in our culture, humility, humility, I think, is more and more just an outward mask that we put on to cover up true motives. Rather than a real aspiration of our hearts, a desire to live humble lives, I think it's a tool used, like the Pharisees used it, who Jesus accused of being whitewashed tombs looking contrite and good on the outside when really their hearts were full of pride and belief that they were better than the people that they were meant to be serving. All too often it's just a layer of paint over the cracks. And even where it's deeply obvious that this is the case, Butters has pointed to a couple of these things this morning in his last prayer, like, you know, like Machiavellian prideful motives of politician. I'm, I'm going to name no names, but, do you know, Actually, we see that society has no real interest in dealing with these cracks. Humility is just a tool there to get things done. You know, it's just a way of playing the game better sometimes than other people. The ends are seen to justify the means. In our society, humility is a PR trick. Not a change that society longs for in its heart. And you know what? This can all too easily get into the life of the church and our motives. Really can. I'll give my own example. Do you know when I was a younger man? I really wanted the stage. Really wanted to be where I am now. I wanted to lead a church 
I wanted to preach. I wanted to pursue it. And do you know what? There's nothing bad in that in itself. 1 Timothy 3, 1 says that it's a noble thing to aspire to be an overseer of the church. PJ Smyther, a leader in our group of churches, said the world needs more elders and overseers. The church needs more people who are willing to learn character and leadership well. Without somebody doing that task, without somebody pursuing that gift and calling, she cannot arise. Anyone who's seen the health of a church or a team where leadership is absent will know that. Do you know, my encouragement to you this morning, if you have any inkling that this is what God has for you, do pursue it. Read up on the rest of 1 Timothy and ensure that you are developing the character and the traits and skills to press onto it. But not with the heart that I had when I started pursuing it. You see, the issue with me was my motivation was pride. It was pride. It was a belief that in my innermost being, that I would make a better leader than other people. That my prayers were better when I prayed them out loud. That I would be a better communicator of the truths of God. And I wanted the status and sense of stepping out above the crowd and what that brought me in a church context. I wanted it. Of course, I knew not to say this to anybody. In my actions and my tone of voice, if somebody asked me, why do you want this? Why do you want to be an elder? I never said, because I think I'm better than you. (laughs) I played the holy Christian outward game well and said things like, I feel called by God. I feel called by God. And you know what? There was a truth in that as well. There was a stirring in my heart. But under it all, there was a feigning of humility in my heart. And God has been on a, a work in me. But do you know what? This, this can still catch me out sometimes. This, uh, do you know, I'm sad to say pride can still seep in. Frustrations that I deserve more praise and notoriety. Feeling that I am too good for certain jobs. Or on the flip side, like we saw in Zacchaeus' story, you know, I can pridefully judge others who I think to be prideful. <laughs> that makes sense? That's what happened. Pride begets pride. Because we see their sin. They're sinners. Hey, they're sinners. I'm pretty good. Me, I'm humble. I sit back. They're sinners. Get it? Do you know, so you see in reality, although this is so simple to understand, really living in accordance with what Paul is teaching when he says nothing, nothing, nothing should be done, whether it be washing up or the most lucrative business deal in your career, because we either personally seek to gain out of it or because we believe that we are better than other people at the task at hand or that you're more important to its success. Nothing should be done out of this. Instead, it should be done because we genuinely consider others, other church members, other Christians, those in this city, friends and enemies as superior to ourselves and desire to serve that with everything God has given us. Do you see, do you feel like, the deep, challenging nature of just one statement in the Bible. Wow. I love Laura's word this morning. (laughs) If it's challenging, God's there to help. Yeah, this is the extent, extent of what Paul is encouraging here. He is saying, do nothing. For Paul's selfish ambition and pride have no place in the Christian life. They're like oil and water, tuna fish and chocolate spread sandwiches. 
an Everton supporter and a Champions League title. They simply do not go together. Hey, you dissed the createments. It was coming your way, brother. Sorry, Ken. But it is, and there's really good reasons for why Paul is spurring us onto this. And if we widen the lens a bit to the context of this statement, to look at it in the wider passage and book, we will see why it is so important to the church to individually and collectively truly take on this character trait, truly strive for this heart trait, truly allow the Spirit to do its mighty work of grace and God to work us in a way that looks different from the world around us. And first of this, when we widen the lens, is because that if we don't get hold of this heart, we are in danger of never becoming the community of unity that God wants. Sorry, joke, but captured something for me. A bit like a dodgy jingle. I was hoping it would be memorable. <laughs> Do you know, let me, let me just explain this for a second. As we know from the first four talks in this series, Philippian Church is a church doing really well. There's very few issues going on in this church. And in the majority of this letter, Paul is encouraging, expressing love and his joy for this church. But one thing Paul has received reports of is some people in 116.17 that are trying to make a name for themselves in his absence as preachers of the gospel. They had a bit of my heart in there. They were selfish ambition and personal gain that they were doing out. Paul graciously in that one says, you know, as long as Jesus is being preached, you know, I, I don't mind. And what we find is there are some arguments going on in the church as well. As well. So there's some selfish ambition, gain, pride, disunity. So having discussed the importance of the church standing firm together in the passage that Toria just preached on wonderfully last week, and the power and the strength of them standing firm together, Paul begins to steer his beloved church away from these things that are bubbling under the surface and could undermine a growth of togetherness and work for the gospel they had so far involved themselves so well in. And so the start of chapter 2, he writes this, which Sarah read out for us this morning. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul says that it would complete, it would be the pinnacle, the absolute apex of his joy for us to be focused on encouragement in Christ constantly, loving comfort constantly, participation in the joint spirit's work, full to the brim of affection and sympathy for one another, full of agreement and one mind together, to be a church of true unity. Fighting for the gospel together without internal breakdowns. Beautiful church. Beautiful church. Divisions and fights hurt one another. Rivaling and jostling for position causes some to be trampled on. Many of you know this all too well. Relationship breakdown damages each other. And more importantly, it damages our ability to put the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ on display. Because people see just the muck of our lives, not the wonder of Christ Jesus amongst us. 
And one primary thing that can cause this division is unchecked, self-centered, prideful hearts and mindsets. I've already touched on it, but we see this so clearly in Zacchaeus' backstory. His life of self-focus and taking from others meant that he was separated from the crowd. And far from love, the crowd was caught up in prideful resentment and judgment of him. Relationship was broken. Unity was broken in their community. It needed healing. On the flip side, the type of true unity in love, in spirit, in purpose that Paul is encouraging here is the stage and platform on which Jesus can stand and his great love can be displayed to the world. John 13 35 says it's actually this very distinctive love for one another where self-interest truly takes a back seat to lovingly serve one another and valuing them like Jesus did. That should be the thing that shows that we belong to Jesus. It's one of the key ways he is known to the world, our love for one another. If we want to put our king on show through two unity, we must die to selfish ambition and pride, whichever side of the fence that is developed in your heart from. We must die to it. And this is the first reason Paul is so keen to spur on this church, saying, look, you're doing well, but do not let these things get in. Don't let them get there, because they can cause disunity. They can affect that great picture of Christ that you are called to display. They can stop the blessing that is intended to come from being a community of unity. Sobering. Secondly, and finally for this morning, if we look at what comes after this statement, we see that without this new heart, it is impossible to follow the example and continue the work of Jesus Christ. It's impossible that he has laid before Paul and his church. Philippians 3, if you can just put it up. Do nothing out of selfish ambition on conceit, but in humility count others as more significant as yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, like we've been singing about this morning. So that at the name of Jesus Christ... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, this passage of uh, Scripture has so many rich truths about it in Jesus Christ uh, that we couldn't touch upon this morning. I'm hoping Barry and his wonderful notes to us maybe picks up on a bit. No pressure, Barry. I couldn't begin to scratch the surface this morning. In many ways, this is the epicenter of this letter because in it we see that everything that Paul is living himself and everything that he's encouraging the church to do stems from this example, Jesus Christ. He's saying, follow me because I follow Jesus. Be like Jesus. Be like this example. Be like what we see in this wonderful moment of Scripture. 
But Paul's primary purpose here, particularly in verse 1 to 8, where I'm going to look this morning, is again very simple. It's just to remind his readers that the example Jesus set was one where he perfectly put all traces of selfish ambition and pride aside and adopted a position and mindset of humility that considered others more precious and valuable than his own life. He's the one who laid aside his heavenly stature and majesty to go on a mission of love to save us. If you don't know him this morning, he did this willingly because he valued you so deeply that he was moved to mission. And it was this lifestyle of God, of him that God so highly exalted. And in casting our eyes to Jesus in this way, in reminding us of what he has done, Paul draws us to an incredibly important point in conclusion. Look, in the same way that had Zacchaeus' heart never changed, he would never have poured out costly blessing on others. Had Jesus not had this mindset in him, if he had not become an obedient servant to God, if he just remained in heaven saying, hey, I'm glorious. If he had not considered our lives as significant as he did, the cross, the cross, the precious cross on which he was crushed for your wrongdoing would never have happened. You would never have known the blessing of salvation. You would never have known the washing of forgiveness. You would never have known the joy and security of the spirit inside you the guidance of his word and the secure promise of eternity with him because the cross would not have happened. But because there was no trace of selfish ambition in him and he considered your life more precious than his own, he willingly laid everything aside and died on a cross so that you and I and everybody from here for the rest of history who calls on the name of Jesus can know those blessings are being restored. His example is one of choosing to pour out his life completely for you. Church, get serious here for a second. It's gonna, if, you, if you're listening right, it's going to make your bum wriggle in the seat a little bit. Obediently pursuing mission and the mission of God that he has set before us to advance God's kingdom through the communication and defense of the gospel, loving the poor and making disciples of all nations is a deeply joyful one. Yes, Paul leads us to that. He leads us to understand that, that work is joyful. But it is also a deeply personally costly one. It is. It is. As Paul's life, writing this letter from prison, displays... This was a man, Chris is going to preach on it a bit, who had everything, had the world at his feet in accordance to worldly terms. But when he writes this, he is locked up in prison, wondering whether he was going to retain his life or not. Mission will cost you in time. Mission will cost you in money. Mission will take up your energy. Mission will cost you in stature in many people's eyes. Mission will cost you in comfort. And in some context, it will cost you freedom and life. 
And the simple reality is that if this createment does not take root in our hearts in a new way this morning, if we remain self-focused and only to do things if they really benefit us, if you stay the most important people in your mind's eye, rather than look to them and theirs, we're not even going to get started. We're not going to scratch the surface. We'll never do sacrificial loves like Zacchaeus. You won't be willing to give to the Zim project because that money's better in your pocket because it serves you, not them. We're never going to be willing to face rejection and shame so that somebody else might be handed the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of knowing Jesus' sacrifice. You'll never be willing to go to that new country and place because he tells you to. You will never be willing to give that word of knowledge because it might impact negatively on you. Do you see it? This is the second reason why Paul is so keen for us to weed out our heart and allow God to do his work in us of grace and shaping. To change us to a position of humility and a position that says there are more important things than me in this world. Because if we never grow in Christ's mindset of humility, we will never fully grow into Christ's example. I want to close up today. Sometimes the Bible's sobering. Sometimes the Bible's challenging. There's always, there's always grace in it. I love this. I was just, I was listening to um, Jakey, uh, Chris's little son at the beginning there, and he was babbling half-formed words to his mum, and his mum was just pouring out joy on him. And this is the reality of how we are with the things of God. We do them in sort of babbly half-formed ways. It's not that we don't seek to grow in them, and set the trajectory and allow God to spill in us. But he loves us. We've had that this morning. God loves you. Despite that, what a great picture of grace Chris brought this morning, wasn't it, our Facebook page? He loves you. He loves you. But there are things also he wants to do in you by his spirit. Click on. And one of the things he wants to do in you is create a new heart in you where you do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Simple, hard, massive implications. Freedom Church. God wants to transform and continue transforming your heart this morning by the word and the spirit and the hand of grace and complete security and love. He wants to draw you on. He wants to strip anywhere out where Zacchaeus' tax collector heart has still got a hold on yours. <sighs> where it's still got a foothold, where we're just going in the flow of the me-first society, where this has been head knowledge and gone, it's gone skin deep. And he wants to draw us on like he wanted to draw the Philippian church on. I believe this morning he wants to put freshly in us this heart and mindset of Christ. He wants us just to go, yes, spirit, I see it. I see its importance in a new way and I want to step into it. He wants us to grow and aspire to true humility and truly seeing those around you, both in this congregation and in the world, as being more superior to you. Can I just pray?
Spirit of God, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for all you've done in our lives. Thank you so much for your magnificent example, Lord Jesus. Father God, Spirit of God, put in us that new heart that you want to this morning. Shape us, Lord Jesus, Father God. Direct us and lead us as your church. Lord, you've given us the name Freedom Church. We pray now you would equip us and shape us so that we might be a church who daily bring your freedom to others, who step into mission, calling and purpose with the same zeal that Paul did and displayed, Lord God, in the same way that he has called on from generations and you have called on from generations to generations for us to do. We ask in Jesus' name that you would leave us forever changed by the power of your spirit and word this morning. Amen.